Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Burkhard Schaefer, who is the Chair of Computational Legal Theory at the University of Edinburgh. His main field of interest is the interaction between law, science, and computer technology from comparative and legal theoretical perspectives. His research encompasses both the problems that technology and technological change poses to the law, technology law, and the use of technology in the justice system and the legal services industry, legal informatics. Welcome, Burkhard. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Yeah. So I want to start with, uh, I believe this is one of the working papers, um, Can One Be Just Without Being Human? Legal AI and the Quest for Executable Justice, in which you say the paper aims to put uh, the, the current debate around legal AI and automated legal service delivery into a much broader philosophical and historical context. And the aims to answer two interrelated questions, how should we educate the lawyer of the future and what types of legal AI can um, can we and should we build? You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, I got interested in that field when I was an undergraduate student back in the 1990s in Munich. Um, natural language processing was a relatively new thing then, uh, trying to analyze text, making it computational. Um, it was the high day of the legal expert system or generally of the expert system. So that's when I essentially started to get interested in that field. Yeah. And um, what happened then afterwards was obviously the uh, second winter of AI happened. And uh, for <laughs> at least the next 10 years, there was a significant drop in interest of using technology in the justice system. Research continued, obviously. Eurex, ICAL, the main conferences were still going strong, but it had become something that was of primary interest really for academics. And that has changed over the last five years or so, I would say, um, really starting with AlphaGo and uh, uh, that, that rather amazing victory of a computer over a, a human. Uh, and, and suddenly it, it was an issue again, and people were 
discussing it. The uh, Law Society for England and Wales has uh, commissioned a large study that looked into the future of an algorithmic-driven uh, legal service industry in Scotland. Uh, the Law Society is now offering a specific qualification as legal technologist. So suddenly there's a significant increase of interest by the legal profession, by the public sector in these technologies. So uh, that that was really where, where, where my interest was um, rekindled to a certain extent, also because I felt that some of the lessons from the 1990s um, had been forgotten. That yeah. we had to reconnect what we were doing with these past experiences again. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, Burkhard. I was uh, <laughs> uh, hmm. I was part of the nuclear winter that you talked about. So my graduate mm-hmm. thesis in the in the mid to late eighties was one of the first expert systems in education. Uh, this is engineering education, and uh, as you know, um, AI in the eighties were more rules based expert systems uh, driven. Uh, and in this new iteration of AI, um, it is more um, empirically driven, more historical database, uh, and not really specifying the heuristics or rules uh, by humans. Um, at least on the surface, uh, this idea seems quite amenable for, uh, for legal, um, legal arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that was always part of the attraction and part of the danger. And one of the things we learn very often as undergraduates when we do legal theory is that law is a system of rules. The the rule likeness of law is not just a descriptive feature, it's even an ideal. And the rule of law ideal is very closely connected with a vision of law that treats it as a almost blind mechanical execution of uh, if-then clauses. Um, And that obviously had had massive impact on the legal imagination for at least 200 years. So it seemed to be very intuitive to say, well, that looks exactly like the type of thing we can do. Um, Therefore, we should be doing it. Um, There's a sound tradition of legal thinking that equates justice, fairness, equality with a almost mechanical um, scientific application of rules. And that, I think, was very, very intuitive. I also think it's very, very wrong. Or at least it is only part of the story. Um, yeah, so so in the paper, you know, you talk about um, sort of the future of the future of the profession in general, the future of law. Um, we, you say we can broadly distinguish two strategies that are suggested to make professions future-proof. One is to integrate technological proficiency in the law curriculum, uh, in law, this would mean to include coding for lawyers, at least an optimal offering, mm-hmm. either by law schools or through continuous professional development. And the other part is more uh, human uh, characteristics, right? Empathy and creativity. So you sort of differentiate between the technical know-how or knowledge and what we consider to be human characteristics at least currently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are two possible visions here of the future. One considers a disruptive change of what we understand a good legal system to be that is um, irrevocable. We are now on a trajectory that will lead us to an increased use of automation, 
um, that will eat at least into some parts of legal service provision. Certain types of traditional legal roles will become unsustainable in that environment. And the best way for lawyers to become involved and to cope with that new environment is, if you like, to ride the tiger, to become, to a certain extent, proficient in technology, not necessarily as coders themselves, but as people who can work confidently with people who develop that type of application. And yeah. we will get a very, very different legal uh, market um, in, in that case. We will get very, very different products. And for that, we have to make lawyers um, at least understanding of technology. Right. Um, that is one possibility. And it is, as I said, driven by a specific, perfectly valid but limited perception of what a just legal system tries to achieve. Mm. And then there's the other approach that says um, you should not even try to compete with computers on their own terms. We are not going to win that battle. We should focus on those things where we as human beings add value. Yeah. So yes, this technology will happen, but that will not make lawyers um, irrelevant or obsolete. It will simply mean that the way we add value to that type of ecosystem will have to be different. And that could be uh, all the soft skills that we bring to the table, which are much, much more difficult to uh, render computational. Empathy is one example. And the ability to understand that our client is in distress, um, experience certain types of emotions, and to respond to them in an appropriate way. If you want to do that, Again, I would say we would have to change the way our law curriculum works quite radically. Um, at yeah. the moment, we do not teach lawyers good bedside manners, at least not as part of the undergraduate curriculum in most jurisdictions that I know. Uh, we do not teach them these soft skills and how to develop them. So that seems to be two of the ways in which at the moment the legal profession is reacting to that challenge. We turn ourselves into computer scientists and work with them and change the legal market profoundly, or we are creating synergies, we collaborate rather than take it over, and we focus on those things where we as humans are particularly good. Yeah, so there's a natural tension there, right, Burkhard, you know, um, so, so rules-based professions, um, let's, uh, legal is, is, let's say, let's argue that legal is one of them. I can think of healthcare as, as possibly mm -hmm. a rules-based profession as well. And, um, you know, it is all, often said that creativity, for example, uh, and, and you mentioned this in the paper as well, creativity as a psychological trait has all, also been linked to an increased tendency to dishonesty. Mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes creativity is not considered very good in mm -hmm. professions that are very much rules based, right? Because you don't want somebody to, you know, with treating somebody, a, a patient, mm -hmm. Uh, to think very, uh, very creatively around in clinical trials in the yeah. <laughs> in practice, yeah. um, and so, so, th so there's that issue that we need to think about. The other, other thing about empathy, um, and you clearly again from a medical from healthcare, you can see you know there's a high placebo effect in patients. So bedside manner always has very high value. Uh, in in law, I think it's a similar situation, right? You have to get your client confident uh, in the argument that you are proposing, and and it's it's not just the lawyer, right? It's a, it's a whole mm -hmm. system that you have to you have to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what 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 I find interesting in that discussion is that there are certain answers that seem to be extremely intuitive at first glance, 
And as soon as we probe them a little bit more, we realize none of these things are quite as simple as they initially look. And that is obviously the traditional job of the philosopher uh, to say, well, hang on a second. Is that really the case? It sounds really intuitive and it sounds really convincing. But is, is it actually true? And you gave a very good example here with the medical profession. Um, we do not necessarily want a surgeon operating on you suddenly to get creative. But <laughs> that is, is not something we would probably uh, want. On the other hand, we want them to spot potentially a totally unanticipated problem, yeah. something that we haven't seen before, something simply goes wrong, and they now have on the spot um, to make a decision. And that is also a type of creativity, robustness uh, towards unforeseen circumstances. So creativity takes on this dual aspect. It could be potentially quite harmful. On the other hand, it makes the surgeon potentially more resilient against the unforeseen. Empathy is the same thing. On the one hand, we definitely want our doctor to empathize with us. We want a human connection. We want uh, to be felt understood. That is an important part of carrying out the first interview. But again, I don't want my surgeon to break down in tears in the operating theater. <laughs> suddenly has this, you know, in a connection with me. And I think right. law works exactly in the same way um, for both empathy and creativity. We don't want our lawyers to be too creative. That, that seems to be almost sometimes connected to dishonesty, as you said. Um, right. Right. The ambulance chaser, Mr. Loophole, finding a gap in the law that no one had anticipated to get a guilty person off. So that's, that's a negative aspect of, of creativity. On the other hand, there's a positive aspect that says, well, every person is unique. The problems that your client are facing are unique. Finding a novel way of dealing with these problems is something good, something positive. And the same mm -hmm. with empathy. Um, on the one hand, yes, we want also merciful judgment. We want to be taken serious as a human being, especially under extremely stressful situations. But we do not want uh, a judge to say, oh, you know, I really, really like you. And yes, you killed all these people, but on just because <laughs> I sometimes feel really bad as well. And so let's call it quit. Uh, that, that we don't want. So both yeah. empathy and creativity, even though they are promoted as a type of soft skills that, that we as lawyers should develop more, um, they do come with a dark side. And it's not totally clear, not totally straightforward to say how exactly are we going to, to manage the tension. Yeah. And then and we will talk about this, I think, in, a, in other papers. But there is also a sort of uh, definitional problem for creativity. Right. So. You know, in this paper, you you know, you kind of point out the inherent ambiguity uh, of legal creativity and legal emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so what we mean by creativity could be quite profession dependent uh, in many ways, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's also something we see very strongly in computational creativity research. And there's a significant debate within uh, informatics uh, people on what it actually means to have a creative machine, what that concept of creativity is. And it seems to be one of these strange concepts that um, the more you understand it, the more it disappears almost. The more we understand what it means to be creative, the less creativity we are somehow seeing because it becomes again on a sort of meta level, something that is ultimately rule-driven, potentially explainable. Uh, a magician works because we don't understand what, what, what they are doing. Um, the moment we understand the trick, it, it, it loses a bit of its magic. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you know, I sometimes feel uh, Burkhard that you know the the this inherent sort of superiority humans feel today uh, over machines um, may be fleeting uh, as well. So you know, in some sense, uh, the attributes we assign to humans, we might be able to assign them to machines in the future, right? Um, you know, or people often say uh, machines cannot be creative. Humans are creative. Uh, we can find uh, creative and empathy. Let's uh, wrap them together. Uh, we can find plenty of examples of humans who are neither creative nor empathetic. Uh, and uh, conceivably, we can find machines in the future that are both empathetic and creative. At okay. that point, it becomes argument becomes much more complex. Well, absolutely. Um, and again, we have to be careful here also about semantics. Um, yeah. Certain conceptions of empathy in particular, but also creativity, it almost becomes trivial that machines are not able to do this just because you smuggle in, if you like, the human element in the very definition of what you are doing. Um, on the other hand, and that's, I think, the problem for law schools and, and for the legal sector, if the idea really is that instead of teaching lawyers all the legal rules, because that's something the machine can do faster and quicker and cheaper, we teach them empathy and creativity. That is teachable. Well, then there is some type of knowledge here that can be passed on from one to the other. And if it is yeah. teachable in that sense, then at least it doesn't seem a priori clear that we can also teach it that we can't also teach it to a machine. If it is teachable, then it shouldn't matter potentially whom I teach it to, a machine right. or a human. So that is, I think, a paradox that we are facing here. It might be that there is something irredeemably human in our empathy and in the, in the way we are creative. But if, yeah. Yeah. if that exists, then it might not be teachable. And that means it doesn't any longer lend itself as a strategy um, to train the next generation of lawyers. Right, right. Yeah, so this is this is exactly the point, right? So exactly like you say, if it is teachable, then there is no difference uh, ultimately between a human and a, and a machine. Uh, but the teacher is arguably a human. Mm -hmm. And so what is teachable is limited by the teacher's ability to teach. Right. So, so that, that, that becomes then paradoxical to even think about. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And I mean, arguably teaching something like creativity poses unique challenges. Um, that's not straightforward. Straightforward knowledge transfer is considerably easier. Um, how, how, how you do it remains a question, but, but it obviously happens. And we have creative writing classes. Uh, there is an element of training that, that we can pass on. Um, so I'm not totally certain where, where, where to draw the lines here. Um, but for me, the dual question then becomes what type of creativity can we teach to a computer? What type of empathy might not be exactly the same that we find with humans? And then would it be a good thing to, um, train a legal AI in these skills, given what we said earlier about the potential negative aspects of, of empathy and creativity in a legal environment? Right, right. So there is a normative question there. What should we do? And there is more of a technical technical question. What is possible? Yeah. 
Exactly. And the latter is going to change with time. Mm-hmm. And so from a policy perspective, the, the former is is at least more practical to think about. And I think there you say uh, it's really that there, there's going to be a huge impact on education, right? You're going to bring up professionals who are potentially very different and with very different skill sets in the future. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that applies to both law and, and to computer science. Um, I I think if we want to build legal technology that is appropriate for a human society, it's neither correct to leave this exclusively to technologists who are only thinking in technological terms, uh, nor is it appropriate to leave it to people who uh, do not understand technology in its own terms either. So so we do need uh, people who are dually qualified. We need a much, much closer integration of arts and humanities into the computer science curriculum and we would in turn need more of a integration of computer science into the law curriculum. Um, We have to be very careful here and that's what I said earlier on about uh, having learned lessons from the past. When when I was a student, first wave of of AI, um, we had coding for lawyers classes. I took them. Uh, What (laughs) a waste of time. Uh, I, I, I never again in my entire life needed to to render a, a legal provision in, in COBOL. I mean, Great. the languages I learned there, they were obsolete by the time uh, that, that I, I graduated. It had no impact on my, my, my life or working in, in, in a legal field. Um, I, I think it was definitely a, a wasted opportunity for most of the time. So I'm, I'm really skeptical about some of these coding for lawyer options simply from, from, from that past experience. I think what we need to teach when we integrate these things is something very, very different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting. You know, at the limit, one could consider uh, all specialties sort of converging. So you, you don't become an engineer, you don't become a, a, a doctor or a lawyer, you become an educated person. And that educated person will have a portfolio of skills mm. uh, that would be useful, um, you know, given the given the backdrop of uh, specialization could be, in other words, specialization could be delegated to computers and humans can become more generalist. I'm not suggesting, Burkhard, that, you know, the, the lawyer will, uh, will learn how to code, but rather the lawyer would know how to conduct like a, like a symphony mm-hmm. uh, conductor, how to conduct something yeah. rather than do something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what what I would like a lawyer to understand, well, part of it, if you like, is a traditional legal theory, legal philosophy, reflecting on what it means to know the law and being able to communicate that. If as a computer scientist, I try to capture legal knowledge, then the lawyer needs to be able to tell me what it is that legal knowledge consists of. So reflecting on what it is that we are doing, um, knowledge yeah. representation, knowledge engineering, I think is in a way more important than, than coding. The second element for me would be to understand what gets lost in translation. And the moment I impose a formal structure on what is originally natural language, certain things get lost inevitably, and they get lost systematically. So understanding mm-hmm. What happens in that process of translation? I think that is, again, very, very important. 
Yeah, yeah. You have another uh, paper here, which is along the same lines. Uh, the man who was in there again, creative informatics and legal AI. And you say as legal AI becomes to be seen as a viable competitor for human lawyers, concern about technological unemployment is reaching also the legal profession. And uh, one possible response is a radical reorientation of the value proposition for legal service industry, uh, focusing less on knowledge and analytical reasoning skills uh, and more on soft skills such as empathetic reasoning and creativity. Um, I think the challenge, like we discussed, is going to be, uh, I guess, how do education systems respond to this? And uh, how do the legal system um, in, in totality respond to this change, right, which is a big discontinuous change in the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, again, we, we have to be very careful what we mean here with a successful application of technology to the law. Um, sometimes yeah. we, we get this high level abstract discussion. Can law be rendered computational? Is it possible at all to apply uh, technology to what we do as lawyers? And mm -hmm. um, we had that discussion back in the 1980s, and it was framed in terms of technological doability. Um, it was framed right. in terms of how what is the expressive power of our languages? What is the computing power of our, um, of, of our hardware? Uh, that, that was the way it was framed. That, for me, that is at least partly a misframing, because I mm -hmm. would say, well, yes, of course, we can computationalize the law, trivially so just won't be the legal system that we, have, that, that we are used to. We will restructure, we will reorder um, the way we think about justice through the lens of what is technologically possible. And that is for me the danger. That is for me the real danger in this process, that um, we don't any longer have a clear vision how a just society looks like. And then we ask how much of that can be suitably supplemented um, through technology. We turn it around. We are saying, what can technology do for us? Okay, it has limits, but that simply means we can't get any longer what we really want or what we really desire. Justice becomes what is technologically possible. Yeah. Yeah, but, but on the other hand, though, Balkar, would you say that, you know, humans could be considered as a basket of biases? And so if you, if you look at, you know, how uh, the, the legal system works today, uh, one could argue that it's not working really well uh, because, you know, uh, humans essentially make decisions that appear to be highly biased. Um, you know, conceivably, one could make an argument that machines will be more consistent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that was always, or that, that, that used to be very much the selling point also of the, the early AI. Uh, machines yeah. are consistent. Um, consistency is in itself a legal value. Treating like cases alike is one of the ways in which we think uh, about justice. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, there is a valid intuition underneath that to a certain extent. There are certain problems with that. Um, mm. Firstly, doing consistently the wrong thing is also not a good idea. Uh, mm. Being consistently biased against a certain group is very consistent. That's <laughs> not what we want. Yeah. And I think right. that's, that's the sort of thing that we've seen with Compass in the US, that we've seen generally with machine learning-based approaches to, to AI in the justice sector. Uh, they simply pick up the patterns, uh, and they are right. patterns, they are rule-based structures 
of our past injustices and amplify them, repeat them, and then bake them into the infrastructure. So we, we might end up with consistency, but consistently doing the thing wrong. So that's one thing. The second thing is, yes, we always wanted the rule of law. We always wanted to be governed by rules rather than people, uh, as the um, um, famous Mexican revolutionary uh, once said, I, I, I will not bow to humans, but I will bow to, to the law. I will uh, accept rules. I, I want to be governed by rules rather than, than, than people. And there's a strong intuition behind that, but no legal system ever achieved that or even wanted to achieve it in a pure form. It's an yeah. ideal, it's an abstraction, it might be in, in Kantian terms, a regulatory ideal, but we wouldn't want it in reality. In reality, we always tried to temper the rules with discretion. We always tried to temper um, judgment that follows um, the rules with something like mercy. So in most legal systems, historically, and you have the operation of the courts, um, you have justice being done in that sense, and then you have the residual power, for instance, to the government, to the president, to issue pardons, to, to have merciful yes. judgment. <laughs> And most systems always have that tension. Some were more formalistic and less empathetic. Some were more uh, substantive in, in, in their approach and less formalistic. But they all tried to ne renegotiate that tension. Yeah. Um, and the, the danger is that, that through technology, we, we, we sort of artificially decide that, that, that conflict, that we push one vision to the margins, for instance, the merciful, empathetic type of reasoning, it becomes irrelevant just because we can't replicate it. And the other mode of thinking dominates. And that is probably right. the danger. I mean, they both have value. They, they need to exist together. They need to balance each other out. It's part of a social, political, democratic process to decide for each generation anew where you want to have the emphasis. And that changes yeah. over time. And the moment you bake that into, into infrastructure, you turn it into architecture, for instance, software architecture, that mm -hmm. rebalancing becomes problematic and difficult to achieve. Yeah, it's a complex problem. Um, as you say, you know, the, the trick is to find the right combination mm -hmm. uh, of machine and human, uh, but that is highly manipulatable, right? Uh, to, the, you know, to the desire of whoever is making that decision. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we, we can clearly see an issue with machine learning, which is learning from history, as you say, perpetuates history. Yeah. And, uh, and history is a collection of errors or, or, or static notions, um, you know, that, that have no relevance in the modern context. Uh, for example, certain countries' constitutions are good examples of this. Uh, and if you say it's a rules-based game, um, you know, whatever written down 400 years ago is what should be, uh, you lose all flexibility in mm -hmm. the process, right? Potentially, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and again, I mean, for me, this is a process rather than a position that I, I have um, reached in any fixed way or form. Um, just to play devil's advocate, one could as well argue that at the moment, some of our judges, some of our courts, some of our lawyers claim to be beholden to the past. Mm. Because there is that vision of justice 
um, that they are not lawmakers, that they just follow the rules, that they interpret the rules the way they were understood by the original lawmaker. But we can question if that self-understanding is actually true. Um, mm -hmm. So, for instance, in the U.S., as you probably know, there's a um, lively debate of ori originalism versus uh, living constitution approaches to, to, the, to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Yeah. One side claims that um, what they are doing is to keep a proper separation of power, which is mm. a good thing, not to legislate from the bench, which arguably could be a good thing, and just <laughs> give effect um, to the will of the historical um, lawmaker, that is the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, but if you probe that a little bit, you realize just how selective they sometimes are mm -hmm. in determining what actually the meaning of a specific expression was 200 years ago. Right. These historians uh, are not necessarily happy with. Now, mm. if you now approach it from a technology perspective, we are by now much, much better, potentially at least, to find out how the vast majority of people at a specific time, a point in time used a specific term. Mm -hmm. We can simply do data analysis. We can um, data mine massive corpora of text from that period. Yeah. No one does that. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. I don't think any court does it at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. So to a certain extent, this argument, we are just applying the rules. We are just applying what is handed down to us from the past actually is not what people really are doing. It is not what they, they describe what they are doing. It's part of their ideology. But I think computer technology can also help us to um, probe that claim and be able to say, well, actually, if that were true, if this yeah. is really what you were doing, well, here's a computer tool that would make it actually better. Right. And if right. they then say, oh, God, no, we didn't mean that. <laughs> right. And we didn't mean that with originalism. We didn't mean that with <laughs> trying to determine the uh, typical way in which a, a, a 18th century um, person would have understood this. Uh, then you have at least identified a degree of hypocrisy in their reasoning. And that is, I think, one of, for me, one of the interesting uh, uses of technology in the legal sector, that you can simply analyze the self-understandings, the, the stories we tell ourselves about how the law works and yeah. see if they are actually holding water. Yeah, you have a book chapter here, uh, Burkhard, uh, along the uh, more practical view of this. So mm. uh, a new approach to visualizing legal argumentation in which you, you explore problems that have been created for legal practitioners in the Mexican civilian legal system by the increased use of precedent-based reasoning and will indicate how a combination of innovative visualization techniques with AI could create teaching tools to address them. Uh -huh. And so this is in that direction, right? We, we need some sort of a combination of modern technologies um, applied, on, uh, applied on the foundation that exists to make it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that was that, that was a really interesting uh, project that, that you mentioned. I had a, yeah. a very good PhD student from Mexico writing her, her thesis about that. Um, it was, as you say, in that context of a legal system changing from being primarily influenced by continental uh, civilian tradition, having a very civilian rule-based mindset, to one that was much more closely aligned to the biggest trading partner, the United States. Um, so incorporating elements of an adversarial um, common law system. Yeah. 
And that is a difficulty. A legal system that tries to do that will experience a lot of tension. And you are changing a different way to think about the law um, through another mental model. And there are problematic ways to do that. And one of the problematic ways to do that is to treat this simply as a change from one set of rules to another set of rules, Mm. trying to think of it primarily as text. And I don't think one of the underlying ideas of that project was that this is not how lawyers actually work, not how humans actually work. We do more than just memorizing rules and applying them. And we have an entire mindset, a way of seeing the world, a way of thinking about the world that we bring to that task. And if you want to change that, simply telling people something, simply giving them texts and giving them information might not be good enough. And law has always been a very text-heavy discipline. And we give people something to read. Mm. We hope that the human brain is capable of incorporating that reading into something else. And for us, the question was, um, are there different ways to think about the law? Not just as an assembly of texts, but as a way of seeing the world, of right. forming mental pictures. And in particular, part of the hypothesis was the way a continental European lawyer, a civilian trained lawyer, forms a mental picture about a case differs systematically from the way a common lawyer forms mm. a mental picture. Mm. And by making that explicit, by using the technology to turn the invisible, the thing that happens in our minds into a visual representation, we can then help with that process. Right, right. And you, you borrow from sort of visualization in military history too for this, right? Mm. Yes, I mean, that, that was um, part of, again, of, of the leading idea. There's a long tradition in the law to think yeah. about it in military terms as, yeah. as a conflict, as, as almost a war, as a fight for justice, um, the battle of the cannons. Uh, the adversarial process, obviously, particularly uh, closely associated with that way of thinking. So one mental model about the law is a conflict model, a warlike model. Mm-hmm. A very different way of thinking about the law is a cooperative one. Um, if you are a contract law, a transaction lawyer, you might think uh, of structural reality in slightly different ways. So we try to make that intuition the conflict intuition that underpins a lot of legal rules visible by drawing on experience from military history and, and the way we make military ways of thinking about the world visible through maps, through um, other forms of representation. Right, right. Yeah, so presumably a good lawyer, um, when, when she does this, is uh, making mental maps that's not typically seen by others Hmm. Uh, in this case, um, you know, this has educational value, this has communication value. So you're making those sort of explicit, right? Yeah. That, that, that makes it easier. Yeah, absolutely. So certain things we intuitively do yeah. and which are shaped by our training experience, our cultural experience, by our social networks, um, what we try to do is to make them explicit. And when we make them explicit, we change them. We distort them to a certain degree. That's always a risk. But we also then allow them to interrogate them and to question them. Uh, And that is sometimes easier to do if you keep it in the visual medium rather than translating it into text. Yeah, yeah. I want to jump into another paper, um, which is, you know, totally foreign thought for me. So it's entitled A Fourth Law of Robotics. 
copyright mm-hmm. and the law and ethics of machine co-production you say as reality catches up with the imagination of science fiction writers who have anticipated a world shared by humans and non-human intelligences of their creation some of the copyright issues take on new resonance how will we regulate copyright when robots are producers and consumers of art you ask you want to talk a bit about mm-hmm. that yeah i mean <clears throat> we, we talked earlier on about um legal creativity and what it yeah. means for lawyers to be creative and also the question whether computational creativity can do legal creativity mm-hmm. so what what i had to do for that or what i'm based that research on was a analysis of computational creativity mm-hmm. um how how do we build creative computers and is the type of creativity we give them similar to legal creativity or is it is it a different nature uh, is an artist differently creative from a lawyer or from a medical doctor or from a poet even yeah uh, and obviously computational creativity research has uh, achieved quite a, a number of results um quite a lot of very impressive results uh, the um um the, the painting fool for instance um a, a program that that makes portraits i think very very impressive in, in in terms of what it can do by now so so we looked into how the law thinks about that mm. um how the law regulates creativity by other sectors by other professions Uh, and it was um in 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 a fast trip for, for the great john bing who was not only an an excellent lawyer who really pushed the field of legal technology uh, forward like like probably no one else in in europe had but also a science fiction writer a very yeah. accomplished science fiction writer so in his work he sort of combines the legal analytical way of thinking uh the scientific way of thinking with the creative thinking the thinking in terms of utopias So so that's why I thought it was particularly appropriate to to look at his work again both his, his um science fiction work and, and his legal analysis to ask how should the law think about computational creativity um to take it serious yeah and and you look at two areas right which is uh, distinctly uh, uh, different and important and one is inputs Mm-hmm. and so you know a machine using copyrighted inputs which is the case most uh, most often both uh, for both supervised and unsupervised machine learning uh and and then the output um yeah. you know wh- who owns that output and what's the copyright status mm-hmm. uh, of that output and yeah. uh, i guess in both of these cases there are very different issues involved right yes i mean there there, there are simply hardcore legal issues here in, uh, involved questions yeah. of legal doctrine so if you send a web crawler on the internet to um collect small pieces of poetry people have written on their blogs and from that it learns how to write a new piece of poetry what happened from a legal perspective in this process of making a copy of the original and then learning from it mm-hmm. turning it into something totally different um does the original author still have a claim on 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 that output in europe we have the database directive which limits the right of ais to simply go on the internet and and extract information from it so we have that problem um what are ais allowed to do when they learn and then as you say we have the second and related problem what is the status of the outcome 
of yeah. CNI if it produces a new work based on that part experience? Uh, is it in itself copyrightable, for instance? And 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 what's the you know what's the thinking uh, right now? What is the status quo? Uh, there, there is no copyright you can get uh, for a purely machine-produced work of art today, right? Can you? In most, well, it's it's contested, I would say. Okay. Um, in the UK, we have a somewhat unusual situation. There, we do have a explicit provision in the uh, Copyright Design and Patent Act that does indeed give copyright to the person who made all the necessary steps to create that work. So typically the operator of the computer. Uh, but the UK is the exception here. Uh, most legal systems um, don't have explicit rules. And uh, there's an emerging case law, again, particularly from the US, that says um, purely machine-created works are not copyrightable. It needs a human author. And that person has to be close enough to the work to really qualify as an author. So okay. very possibly, um, some of these works are not protected currently. Right, right. So as we move forward, though, um, this becomes very confusing, right? So since the robot is not really asking for a copyright, mm -hmm. it's the owner of the robot who is asking for the copyright, uh, you know, for the robot, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so will the copyright then transfer, I mean, you, in the UK uh, situation, if you sell the robot, the copyright naturally transfers the new, new owner of the robot? Um, that, that, that would be my, my interpretation. No, um, I, I don't think the copyright for past works exists. It doesn't follow the machine. So if I buy a piece of software that then allows me to create poetry, I'm using it on my computer, I press the right buttons, I determine the right input, I become the creator of the resulting work for at least uh, certain types of, of copyrightable work. If I then sell on that piece of software or someone else is using it, again, they get the copyright for the things they produce when using that technology, but they wouldn't acquire the copyright of everything that I had produced with it. Um, that becomes very quickly, very, very artificial mm. um, because it assumes a, a, a notion of ownership of that piece of software that is not going to be realistic in, in, in many use contexts. Right. Um, but that is how the law in the UK at the moment would deal with that. Um, in the US, quite possibly, these things simply become part of the open uh, domain and, and, and can be used by everyone. Yeah, and then, you know, going back to, so th there could be a situation where uh, you make a machine and that machine, you know, you, you're not actually inputting any process to make artwork, let's say. Mm -hmm. But the machine sitting in the basement goes out to the web, collects information, and and makes something that is totally creative, uh, mm -hmm. with, with no input from the owner of the machine. Uh, isn't that work sort of distinctly different from the owner? Many legal systems would agree with you. Yeah. They would say there is simply not any longer enough of human creativity uh, in that work. Um, we therefore have to treat it just like uh, the famous monkey selfie. Um, it's a natural object 
Uh, it is not owned by anyone. Again, the UK situation might be different on that. Personally, I I have a, a slightly take a slightly different view in that paper as well. Yeah. Um, I think that it is possible to ascribe copyright here to a human. Um, <clears throat> and the, the, the author, in, in my view, is simply the first human who recognizes one of the outputs as art. Hmm. If, you think, if you think to um, Objet Rivet, found art, Duchamp hmm. pointing at a, a toilet and saying, this is art. And in that moment, Duchamp pointing at that toilet and uh, that basin and making it a work of art, taking it out of its context, he created something. Right. Even though he obviously didn't build the toilet, it was the moment of recognition or labeling that created the work. And my suggestion is to treat computer-generated works like that. The computer has no understanding of what it is doing. Searle's famous Chinese room argument from the computer perspective, that is just a, a string of symbols, for instance. Um, it always will generate lots of things that are not good, that are um, essentially gibberish if it is text or that have no artistic value. At some point, a human will say, this is good. I like it. That talks to me. And it is that moment of recognition, I would mm -hmm. say, where the human creates a work of art. And that would be for me the point where to attach copyright. Yeah, but, but yeah, so that is sort of the status quo technology. But one could envision a situation that a computer recognizes that that new work as art. That that is exactly what the painting fool tries to do. And yeah, yeah. as I said, it's for, for me one of the most impressive uh, pieces of computational creativity. You're absolutely right. That pushes even my minimal input of a human to its very limits. Right. Uh, and I haven't made up my mind on that question myself yet. Uh, I still think there's something slightly different going on in what the, the painting fool software does from what a human does if something is recognized as art. Um, but I, I, I can't any longer, to my own satisfaction, tell you what that difference is. <laughs> yeah. so at the moment, I'm sort of reserving my counsel on that. Um, yeah. It might, again, be one of these irreducibly human aspects that, that, that come to the fore here. Yeah, I mean, what's scary about this, Burkhardt, is, you know, we're not talking about long periods of time. We are talking about 10, 15 years. Mm. That would require the legal system to, to, to have rules that it has never even thought of. Um, you know, so there is a whole idea of, you know, ethics, AI, ethics, um, it, it, all these things are lagging. So mm. technology has really taken off and all the support systems have been lagging behind it. That, and that, that is a very common opinion that you find a lot, that yeah. the law is lagging behind. Yeah. Um, again, for me, uh, the role of the philosopher is to, to question that just a little bit. Um, okay. And it, it also had to do, again, to do a little bit with, 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 with my personal uh, history. I, I was trained in Germany, as, as you recognize by my accent, uh, <laughs> in a civilian legal system um, where the law is codified, where we have disconnected ourselves from the past. Mm. And then I moved to the UK, to Scotland, to a common law legal system or a mixed legal system in the case of Scotland. And suddenly history became much, much more important. 
mm-hmm. and the ability to go back way in time to find something that looks reasonably similar to mm-hmm. be able to then build a legal uh, answer on it. Um, colleague of mine citing a case from uh, the time of the Roman Republic to solve mm-hmm. a modern day, day property law. And I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. And the more, the more I imbued that, that type of ethos, the common law way of thinking, and, and also got interested again in history in general, the more I started to become doubtful about that idea that law is lagging behind. Law yeah, might yeah. be already there, might have been already there for a very long time. Um, we just need to step back, abstract away some of the novelty of the technology, mm. re- re- revisit it. And that, again, that's a way for me of seeing reality rather than talking about reality. Um, just don't see the computer, don't see the technology, see the human beings, see their conflict, see their suffering. Once you do that, you realize, oh, well, actually, that legal, that legal problem isn't that old. <laughs> we had that for a very, very long time. That existed before. Right. Um, so, for instance, the way we, we, we surround ourselves with other intelligent non-human agents, that mm-hmm. is not a new thing. We have been doing this since the dawn of time. We just call yeah. them dogs, horses, uh, <laughs> parrots. Um, and some of the legal issues, obviously, um, where, where, where pertinent even at these days. So I think one of the advantages of the legal perspective or the jurisprudential perspective here is to try to not be fixated on the novelty of the technology mm. and to ask what are the human problems underneath it? What are the human conflicts that are generated by that? And because human nature is relatively constant for the last uh, millennia, um, there we find, again, I think, blueprints on how to solve these issues. Yeah, that, that's very interesting, Burkhard. So as, as uh, things get more complex, we might be better off looking back into more foundational principles hmm. and, and simplify it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to finish with um, um, another paper, uh, which is a different area. So on living and undead wills, Mm. Uh, zombie as you say, technology <laughs> and the future of inheritance law. Yeah. Uh, you say communicating unidirectionally with a world in which we do not exist any longer has been possible ever since the invention of writing. Uh, but until recently, this process remained inevitably static and one-sided. I can create a fixed message, a letter, or more recently, a voice or a video recording, which will be read or played after my demise but the reader or listener can engage in a discussion with me, ask questions in case of ambiguities, and neither can I adjust the message to change circumstances and conditions. Uh, you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, I mean, again, it is, it is sort of related to some of the things uh, that we discussed before. Yeah. In the past, legal technology very often focused on that moment of applying a rule to a set of circumstances very typical perspective of what the law is. Um, We teach students by giving them precedent cases, by giving them famous court decisions. So it is that moment of judging uh, on which typically uh, the legal imagination focuses. Mm -hmm. But obviously, legal practice is very different. Uh, Very, very few lawyers, law students become judges. Most of them deal with transactional uh, issues, writing contracts, um, writing wills and testaments. 
And I was just starting to think about these activities as a different form of lawmaking. Private law allows humans, individuals to make laws, to make rules that are then binding between them. And uh, looking at legal tech in that context might open up ways to think about it that are different from that, that judge-centric or court-centric view. Yeah. And I thought that in particular, writing a will, doing a testament, is very, very similar in structure to what a legislator does. As a legislator, I try to anticipate future circumstances, and then I lay down the rules, what I want then to happen. But obviously, I don't know everything that is going to happen, and then I need lawyers to interpret what I did. Yeah. If I write a will or testament, I do the same thing. I won't be around any longer, obviously. Uh, I try to anticipate lots and lots of potential scenarios, mm. but I'm limited in the way I can communicate to the future. So my idea simply was, what would happen? And that is more a thought experiment than an mm -hmm. actually proposal to develop something. What would happen if I could train an AI on yeah. my personal preferences? So when I act as a quasi-lawmaker here, as, as a, my own parliament, and I try to determine what should happen with my assets after my death, that AI can then advise um, my heirs, the um, administrator, administrator of my estate, what my preferences would have been. Mm. So think of the typical scenario. I write in my traditional will, my eldest son should get the money. <laughs> mm. And I think I know who my eldest son is. Ah, unfortunately, you know, there was this girl I met 25 years ago. <laughs> it was just one night at a conference in Australia. And I never heard from them again. Uh, but it just so happened that I had another older son. Right. And he now turns up. I'm dead. I can't any longer interfere with that. And yeah. he says, the will said this should go to, my old, uh, to, the, to the deceased eldest son. That's me, biologically speaking. And the person who grew up as my oldest son says, well, hang on a second. He definitely meant me. He didn't even know about you. Um, who, who are you? So a very typical, well, not that typical, but a not too uncommon scenario uh, in the law of wills. And yeah. now some human has to interpret what I would have meant with my provision. Mm. And I wrote, it should go to my eldest son. And the idea simply is to have an AI that is trained on my preferences, that understands me in a way, then answering that question. Say, right. Burkhardt would have wanted this to go to the biologically oldest one, for instance. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a thought experiment, but it's not necessarily too far, right? I mean, there have been a lot of, lot of um, talk around essentially being able to download your brain yeah. Uh, that, yeah. Yeah. Yes. The, the, there, there is a, a science fiction-based literature, absolutely, on digital immor immortality. Um, that I find very, very far-fetched. That's interesting. <laughs> but yeah. No bearings on reality. What What I describe by contrast. Yes, there are things we are trying to do as well, trying to do in Edinburgh at the moment that makes it easier to manage that transition. And to a certain extent, there are things we can do even with today's technology. But that brings us back to something I said earlier. We can do something um, with current technology. It just won't have the same quality of what we do now manually. 
And then we as a society have to make a decision. Do we prefer the cheaper, more efficient substitute or are the things that we are losing really, really important to us? And again, my paper tries to simply open up that discussion to show some of the advantages and some of the disadvantages in that. Yeah, I mean, presumably this is a good uh, practical application in the sense that uh, your preferences, your personality is a function of history and you can actually train that agent while you're alive mm-hmm. and you can test it right before before you yeah. die. And, exactly. you know, when you mm-hmm. essentially give it away, you basically say, yeah, here is here is what I expect my preferences would be if things yeah. change in the future. Yeah, I can even quantify it. I can say yeah. in 100 questions or 100 scenarios I gave to that software, in 95% of the cases, it decided in the way I would have decided myself. Yeah. So I can give a very, very strong steer. And that sounds great in theory, but I think, again, if we then look back and look at it not from the technology perspective, but from the humanity perspective, that would change the dynamic between the present generation and the next generation potentially quite substantially. We would limit the freedom of the next generation. We would exercise more control over them. Mm. That might not be a good thing. It is something we like to do. Pharaohs <laughs> built the pyramids. Yeah. Uh, we like to be remembered, we like to control what our heirs are doing, but it might not be a good thing. Um, so I think we need to think about these things very carefully in their social, ethical and political context. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you would argue, Burkhard, that if such a technology existed, it will sort of stagnate uh, you know, our thought processes in some way. It, it, mm. it will take away the flexibility. In yes. Some sense. yes. And uh, again, if you look at legal history in that regard, it is very interesting. Um, for long periods of time, the law prohibited things that were technologically by then doable simply because of the invention of the printing press. Yeah. Uh, it limited the length of time you could control your assets after your death because mm-hmm. society decided that is not what we want. We want to be free at one point from the, 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 the dead hand of the past. Right. And recreating that dead hand through technology would come at substantial social costs. We might not want to do that. And I, I definitely wouldn't want to do it. Again, it was a thought experiment to tease out some of the intuitions that we associate with um, justice and with testaments from a legal perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, even if most people don't want to do it, some people would want to do it, which means that there has to be some sort of a legal foundation basis to ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, Burkhard. This has been great. Uh, Thanks so much for spending time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, and good luck with all your research. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.